0: Hello friends and welcome back to It's All Relative, the show that explores life's issues through a generational lens, helping us understand how we are evolving as consumers, workers and citizens. Each episode, I shall be tackling a juicy question I want answered by interviewing experts, voices and practitioners along the way to unravel the complex answer. Today's slightly different. You know that I like to call myself a historian of generations, but today's guest has some problem with that title. (laughs) In fact, he'll probably argue that those professing to analyse generations often make huge, bold, exaggerated, stereotyping claims with no basis in data or analysis. So today's pod is going to be a good one, where we will be discussing the point and problems of generational analysis, what's wrong with it, and how we can understand age, generations and time a little better. Bobby Duffy is Professor of Public Policy and Director of the Policy Institute at King's College London. For over 30 years, he has worked at the forefront of policy, including a stint in Downing Street. He is an author of two books which tackle in different ways his interest in deciphering fact from headline and deciphering reality from stereotype. His second book, entitled Generations Does When You're Born Shape Who You Are, is a forensic dissection of generational analysis. What's good? and what's really going on when we talk about generations. Bobby, welcome to It's All Relative. Thanks for coming in.
1: No, great to be here. Really good.
0: So let's start with some basics. Why did you feel the need to write a book about generations and generational analysis?
1: If you're trying to sum up the book in one sentence, it is that generational thinking is an incredibly powerful idea that's been horribly corrupted by terrible stereotypes, myths and cliches. So I guess my interest started a long time ago, 20 years or more, when Bob Putnam was writing his book or just publishing his book on bowling alone, and we compared some data. So we had similar data for the UK that he had for the US. And the way he was presenting that data in a very simple way, just as line charts that track generational cohorts over time so that you can see what sort of effect is going on was just very powerful. And it made me think about doing that across more subjects and then across more countries. It provided insight that I'd never seen before. So I was really interested in what you can learn about the nature of change through your generational lens, and then what that tells you about the future. Then post that, the cliches and stereotypes around millennials in particular started to take off on social media and all the memes and tropes that we get about millennials, about avocados and top knots and everything else.
0: Let's go through them then. So too much avocado on toast means they can't buy houses. Millennials have killed doorbells and golf. Boomers have all the money. Boomers are all conservative, anti-woke, climate change, conservative voters. Oh, we could have fun here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's some themes that you see Millennials are always accused of killing things, things that, you know, including and up to the napkin industry. Baby boomers don't get killed of killing stuff so much as ruining it. So they've ruined things for other people is the theme that goes through. We could spend the whole of this podcast listing things millennials are supposed to have killed.
0: Why do you think that we like to pit the generations against each other?
1: There is something important about the long, long history of young versus old. Old people have always denigrated young people, all the way back to Socrates, as you'll know, massive long diatribe about young people of his day, how they're the worst ever, bad manners and love gossip in the place of activity and all these kind of lists of things. You can go all the way through and go through every single era. And it's always the latest generation of the worst ever. Life cycles are real effects on people. You go through different life stages and you get more scared and worried and confused by incoming generations as you get older. And they just look weird to you. It's kind of natural and inevitable. I think on top of that, we did have an explosion in the information environment just as millennials were coming of age, coming into those sort of formative years and when they were doing weird stuff or things that unsettled or were new to older generations. So they were kind of ripe for people sharing those types of tropes. And it is mm-hmm. the conflict point is really important because that is sort of built into the information environment where angry and emotional responses travel further and faster than more reasoned ones. Emotion works. And some US journalists said conflict is clickable. So you've got those combination of things that have put conflict right at the heart of how we think about generations. And then there are some really big picture things like the generations are a little bit in conflict because wealth in particular has become much more generational over the last few decades than it was in the past in the sense of it's been concentrated to a large degree in one cohort with the baby boomers. Private wealth growth is one of the economic stories of the last few decades and its concentration among one particular cohort is a key part of that story. There are tensions there, that's true, but it is those broader things of the environment that's really turned this into a very common stereotype.
0: There's the intergenerational wealth gap, we'll talk a little bit about that later, which is real and Western, I think we should also say. There's also the cultural divide, and I actually don't think it's as big as people think it is. And then there's also the technological divide. So around culture and values, whether we're talking about, say, woke versus anti-woke being an age distinction, whether we're talking about the values around nation state or attitudes towards work or values around education, there is a generational gap. Is it bigger than it has been in the past? And is it as real and as big as people like to claim?
1: Yes, there is a difference of opinion on those sort of changing cultural norms between young and old on things like gender identity or the role of the British Empire, how people view those emerging more prominent values or identity or social issues. But the key point is that there's always a gap between young and old Mm. on those types of things. It's, It's not just inevitable because of that point of we change more during our formative years, so new generations coming through are naturally more open, to new ideas and older generations are naturally less open because they grew up in a different formative phase, not just because of that, It's not just inevitable because of that. It's also beneficial for society that that happens because if we didn't have that sense of tension between younger and older generations, it probably means that we are not changing fast enough because that generational refreshment is how societies move forward in their thinking. You can see that time and time again. So it's not something that we should be particularly terrified. And then when you look at the actual data, there's this almost iron rule that the youngest generation are twice as comfortable with the emergent social trend as the oldest generation in society at any kind of one time. In the 1980s, that was baby boomers being much more comfortable with women having a role at work compared to their parents and not just a man's job and with homosexuality. But you move that forward to today and you look at issues like gender identity and British Empire, it's actually baby boomers who are the big older generation and their Gen Z are twice as comfortable with more fluid views of gender identity than baby boomers, for example. So the issues change, but that gap between young and old is not unusually large.
0: Is there something unique about the boomers who were the first generation when youth culture was really lionised in a way and also politicised really in a mass way? I mean, you had it a bit in the 20s, but really it's the 60s and the 70s where that was the generation that was never going to get old. And I think they've really struggled in particular because their culture really up, I would say, into the early 2010s was the mainstream culture. You know, Mick Jagger and Paul McCartney were still doing national events. Boomer youth culture was mainstream culture. And I think what's happened in the last 10 to 15 years is a disruption of that. When I talk to my mother about certain things, whether it be feminism, whether it be sexuality and sexual rights, whether it be progressive politics, she always insists that her generation were the first ones to ask these questions. She doesn't like being categorised as the conservative dinosaurs. So Mm. I think that's also part of the tension there. And because they've got so much money, they've kind of held on to the megaphone, certainly Mm. in politics, for a lot longer than arguably they should have done.
1: No, certainly. Yeah, It's a very interesting generation because it's large demographically, so it does have more political weight. It's in from an era when voting was very much a natural duty, so their voting levels are very high, so their political power as well as their economic power is very notable. And that's why lots of decisions have been bent their way in politics and policy, as well as in setting a cultural tone. I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's a strange transition, but I mean, it's useful to introduce probably that the three elements that make up all of this sort of change at this point, because it is mm. the blend of the these things. So all change in society can be explained by those three effects that you pointed to in the introduction. It's either a period effect where something happens and we're all affected and there's a big change. or small, gradual, but important changes. But things like pandemics or wars are classic period effects, where it has an impact on everyone. And then you have cohort effects, which are true generational effects, where a generation comes in is different from previous generations and stays different over time. But you also do have life cycle effects, which is where we change as we age and go through different kind of life stages.
0: Mortgage and kids.
1: (laughs) Yes. And then retirement. And just think of the baby boomer kind of generation. Interestingly for me, writing a generational book, one of my key conclusions at the end personally was the power of life cycle effects dragging Mm. us along. These cohort effects as big tidal movements that are slow. Period effects are like waves that are fast. But then life cycle effects are like currents that pull us along in a particular direction. And they're really powerful in the end. And they create the climate in that kind of C analogy. Baby boomers do get pulled where they may be different, started off different, mm. all those types of things. When you get more towards the end of life, you do get pulled into these types of mindsets.
0: That's quite right. And I think you're seeing that with the millennial demographic now who are no longer young, realising they're no longer young because they're parents first off, and then they're managing this next generation of 20-somethings coming through who are real digital natives, and have a very different outlook. That's a new life stage for them, which... To be honest, they've been dragged kicking and screaming into because they had such a delayed process into adulthood, delayed journey into adulthood. And so I think the realisation has been really quick and quite (laughs) demoralising. And there's sort of that realisation thirty-five which often coincides now because women are having babies later, with greater financial responsibilities. I'm not going to say home ownership because that's certainly not all millennials. Greater responsibility for your parents who are now ageing. Obviously, responsibility for kids if you have them. But also you've been in the workforce a certain number of years. There's a certain wave of tiredness and exhaustion and cynicism that takes over. So what would you say then about that narrative or the expectation that you become more conservative as you get older?
1: This has been looked at quite recently. There was a Financial Times analysis of the trends in looking particularly at millennials and whether they were changing that pattern. And the conclusion from that is that millennials have followed a different path so far in terms of turning towards conservative. So it has been true in previous analysis that for every year of life, you're 0.35% more likely to vote conservative.
0: Wow. And how far back does that go?
1: It was a really good analysis by an Oxford academic who looked at it over quite a long period of time, over a few decades, not over like the whole of the post-war period. And it will go up and down and change. But there is real truth to the saying that that tends to happen. And look, that is utterly unsurprising when you go back to that point about life cycle and your formative years. And then we do, just as we get older, look backwards a bit more and think about tradition and conservation, you know, conserving things rather than new progressing. That's just inevitable. Not everyone, and this is on average and all those types of things. Mm. But yes, no, millennials and Gen Z, we did further analysis after the FT analysis looking at Gen Z as well, is they are not moving in that type of direction as yet. But there's a couple of qualifiers on that. One is that that is comparing conservative voting in the UK with the average level of conservative voting across all ages. And the trouble is we've got a particularly fervent conservative supporting older group right now. So Mm. millennials can't really catch up with that average.
0: They were the benefits of Thatcherism, like what the Conservative Party has given that generation and very specifically that generation will not be replicated, even if they try for their millennial kids, unless it's through inheritance by not taxing their gifts from their parents.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The main qualification, I guess, that we put on that, whether the political life cycle is broken as opposed to not working right now, is that there's so much change in politics. Things that look, rules that look absolutely broken, and then rules that look broken reassert themselves Mm. quite often, because it's more or less the perfect blend of period, life cycle, and cohort effect in a really complex way, how people actually vote. So I think it's an utter rejection from the vast majority of millennials for the current version of Conservative, This just does not appeal to them because the economics and also the cultural aspects of it, putting culture wars at the centre of your political, for some in the Conservative Party, it's just going to build in a generational divide. It's inevitable. So that could change quickly.
0: I wrote an article a couple of years ago arguing basically that millennials were capitalists for whom capitalism was not working. And, you know, that shift from a time when the market's dysfunctional and the state is withdrawing, the shift has gone to mum and dad for those that have the bank of mum and dad. And obviously that's not all. So there's a couple of things there because when I think about my politics and I... I think about my generation, particularly my female peers, we've become more radical as we've aged, particularly more radical as we've had children. Mm. And there is a really strong argument, I think, for thinking we get more conservative as we age as just really a baby boomer thing. Millennials weren't given or did not have the same level of opportunity that the boomers did under Thatcher or even Gen X, subsequent generation, did under Blair. And so we haven't had that. And then once you have a baby, do you have children? Yeah, yeah. You suddenly realise why the welfare state exists. I mean, you really do. Obviously hospitals, but also schools, libraries. I mean, you suddenly realise, I think, the need for state infrastructure. And, And millennials started having kids when state services were being rescinded. And that's become even more intensified over... For covid as well particularly mm. maternity care and i see my female millennial peers becoming actually quite angry and much more radicalized whether that lasts or not i don't know And whether the labor party has a capacity to shore up those votes i'm not clear yes life cycles are important but for millennial women they were the ones that were sold the equality myth mm-hmm. women can do study be anything they want to be which sort of worked for us until we had children and we realized it was all rubbish When it comes to technology, do you think that it is the great divide? The new book by Jean Twenge in in the US has really cited that it's technology that really divides the generations. And she really charts Gen Z as the social media generation who have a fundamental different level of outlook, values, individualism, behaviours, because they are the social media generation. What do you think about the role that technology plays in generational divides and definitions?
1: The biggest gaps you'll see between youngest and oldest generations are on technology use. That's absolutely the case, whether that's social media or other aspects of technology, but particularly social media use where you get, you know, it's nine in 10 Gen Z on social media every day and it goes down to like 20% baby boomers. We've got this kind of impression that older people are more online now, but it's just incredibly different level of intensity and type of use. Mm -hmm. The differences are real and large and significant. Whether it's like, then completely carves out one particular cohort in gen z as very different i'm not so sure there's something really interesting about gen z i feel for you millennials because we gen x no one ever really cared about us and it's going to be quite soon they're not going to care about millennials very much (laughs) and you'll be talked about a lot less it's much more boring being in that middle age
0: solidarity bobby
1: (laughs) yeah yeah well i'm sort of smug i'm going towards my (laughs) when we're the older group and then people really don't care about you i think what happens with gen z is going to be really interesting but the idea of carving off one area of life, like technology, and saying that is the defining factor. And it goes to the point about why are mental health disorders increasing so steeply among this cohort mm. of young people, and particularly young women? It's just repeated around the world. The coincidence of timing looks like it's big social media or smartphone relation, and that is what Jean and Jonathan Haidt and others' work really, really points to. And I think we're definitely going to be playing a role. But then there's lots of people who are saying, well, yes, but there are other things too, that have changed during that period. And in terms of economic circumstances, the increased pressure on education, lots and lots of things have changed. And Working mothers. Yeah, health inequality. There's loads of things that have happened. And the danger is, if you just point it at one smoking gun, Mm -hmm. we have a tendency as humans to want to find one single answer to a problem because it's just easy then. Because then you can say, let's do that thing to solve that one and then we're done. It's not going to happen. It's not going to work like that on mental health disorders, for example. And we need to think of it more systemically. And I know that Jean and John Height and others are pointing to how social media and smartphones have changed the system more generally, that it is a more systemic effect, where that's a core part of it. So that is important. But still, I think what we do in return is not just banning social media platforms or trying to reduce use or trying to do other things that are just related to that. We're going to need much mm-hmm. more support for people that cuts across other domains of life in order to deal with those types of challenges. though. So even if it's a core cause, what you do in response is not just deal with that cause
0: right and we are in danger I think of fixating too much on social media like you say that this sort of you could go right back to the invention of the wireless Mm -hmm. to cite these moral panics that were around the wireless TV, video nasties in the 80s when I was a kid, gaming in the 90s, punk music. I mean, there's all sorts of lame games that are played in culture on certain things. And yeah, social media is having that moment. Or maybe we're actually slightly in a crux point on that front. Yeah. Do you think that Gen Z are really been shaped by COVID? I mean, I sort of feel like because it in many instances was their last experience of education or their first experience of work, yeah. curtailed social relationships, identity formation, you know, real life activities, travel, all of that stuff, which is so critical at that point in people's lives. And they were sacrificing their youth to keep older members of their family and society safe. What's your view on the impact of COVID on that generation?
1: It's going to be important. I did a long read for the New Scientist on all the different elements of what we think the cohort effect will be from COVID. It's one of those events that very, very rare events where you would say this is actually properly generation forming, because where you were in your life cycle was so Mm. related to its impact on you. It was a period effect, but we all had very different experiences of it, depending on where we were. And the people who were going through those very formative experiences, and particularly people going through transitions from primary school to secondary school, secondary school to university, university to work, I think what we learned is that those transitions are really, really difficult under those circumstances because the support wasn't there and normality wasn't there.
0: How old are your children?
1: I've got an 11 year old and a 14 year old. So my 14 year old didn't get to the end. So they didn't have their leaving party at primary school. She didn't get all that joy of being the big girl at the very end of primary school. And then in first year of secondary, they all had to just sit in the same place, no class movement, no activities. She was sat next to some, one person for the whole time with their masks on and all classes were taught in that one place. She only had one primary school friend that came to the secondary school with her. So there was no way to make new friends. So she had a very difficult six months and then all got better and better and better. And it's all good now. But that is sure that has an effect on her that she'll feel. And I'm sure that it will have an even worse effect on people that maybe had less support than she had. So those types of transitions are the bits where you need to look for what the long-term effects.
0: Do you have elderly parents?
1: Well, I did until recently. (laughs) This is the classic of that middle patch of life. And during a pandemic, that was incredibly difficult Mm. as well. So you can see everyone had different types of pressures and experiences.
0: I was pregnant during the pandemic, which was really tough. And I'm very grateful that it was my second and not my first. But I did experience going into the hospital by myself, Mm. even for the birth. And I also had a two and a half year old who really didn't get socialised in the way that he should have done before school. And I can see in his cohort, like you say, they were at the transition point where their world revolves around mummy and daddy. And then really when they go to nursery and then obviously eventually school, they gradually socialised. And he missed, you know, a year or so of nursery, which was really critical for him. And playground's an absolute riot because (laughs) they just haven't had the same level of socialisation that previous cohorts have. What's interesting, though, I did some very loose focus group polling on the impact of COVID on the young. And I was asking really sort of 14 to 21 year olds. And the majority of them said, yeah, it was hard, but I'm over it. And it felt to them like a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there's something as you get older, time feels like it's moving quicker. So to us, we still have slight sort of PTSD about lockdown and homeschooling. But to the young, the dents, the scars may be there, but it feels like a long time ago to them and therefore hasn't lingered in the same way that it perhaps us
1: yeah look, that's one of the features, incredibly resilient young mm. people. but I mean, the crux of the pandemic effect was it, it ruthlessly exposed existing vulnerabilities. So it's probably not mostly our peer group kind of people that we'll be mixing with. It was people with less support, more vulnerable in all sorts of different ways that really felt the brunt of this. So this has massively increased inequality of outcomes for people because they just didn't have the support systems around them which were very important and obviously problems and and longer term difficulties that came from the COVID experience can happen to anyone anywhere. But you are more insulated against it if you have that greater support. But lots of people didn't.
0: Which brings me to my next question about intersectionality, because, you know, obviously age is one identifier. But as you alluded to, socioeconomic class, educational attainment, geography, gender, sexuality, race, how are you mapping or are you at all the intersectional nature of generational identity?
1: We do. In the types of analysis I do, which is mostly survey based, there's limited things that you can do to split generations by gender or socioeconomic group or race, just because of the sample sizes are too small and you can't get a good picture of what's real or not. But I do do that wherever we can. And it's really interesting on things like gender, where if you look at perceptions of gender roles, its cohort is much more impactful than the gender you are. So that pre war and baby boomer generation women are much much closer to pre-war and baby boomer generation men in their attitudes about whether women should work or not. There is an interaction there that you can unpick a bit. But no, it's more difficult to overlay all of these types of things purely because of the nature of the data. One of the most important conclusions from the book and all the analysis is it's not an either or in this. And what you should be using the generational bit to do is to uncover where you may have these other differences going on that you need to understand, for example, around that kind of COVID point of this is where inequality is going to be really really important to understand. And it's sort of similar to the wealth point as well. People say, why are you bothering with that generational stuff? This is all about socioeconomic inequality. But when you've got a change in who owns the wealth that is so cohort driven, so interrelated to generations, you need to understand generations in order to understand that socioeconomic inequality, because the top third of baby boomers got the vast majority of that wealth, they're going to die out over the next decade or two. And that wealth is going to flow down, but very unevenly across Mm. the younger generations. Not everyone has far from every baby boomer made it big. It's only going to be the children of those who did that are going to inherit this wealth coming down. So you need to understand how the two interact. The story of the next couple of decades is going to be how intergenerational wealth transfer happens. That's what we're going to need to grapple with. Do we need to tax wealth, think about wealth in a different way? Because otherwise, it's just going to reinforce advantage into coming generations where the wealth of your familial resources are going to be the thing that really helps determine where you end up in life, which is not a great thing
0: it's such an important point and it speaks to the stuff that I've been doing on the rise of multi-generational homes in particular in a era of intergenerational wealth transfer but also care transfer let's be honest the natural Mm -hmm. care reversal process that has to happen within the family where the parents themselves become parented by the children and what that particularly when there's that economic infantilization of the millennials because they don't have the money and the parents do I think what's interesting about multi-generational relationships these days within families is that, yes, we talk a lot about wealth transfer, but there's also a lot of care done across the generations that isn't anything to do with Mm -hmm. wealth. So you may not have your mum and dad give you a deposit for a flat, but you may have grandma doing Friday's childcare. So that intergenerational interdependence is, I think, really key. I mean, you even have like around 28% of Gen Zers look after grandparents now, do some form of care for their grandparents per week. So families, in a way, have never been stronger. I have written that we're living in the golden age of the family these days. That runs counter to the sort of traditional narrative of generational wars. We don't talk about that enough, how we're all getting along
1: exactly that it's one of the key bits of the analysis is that conflict is fake between the generations because we don't live in our peer groups we live in our families and love and connection up and down the generations through our families is incredibly strong and as you say stronger in many ways i mean it is stronger in a nuclear family beanpole type family way where we don't have the same extended family connections as we used to have but we've got this really tight straight up and down grandparents to parents to children to grandchildren type group Again, going back to the point about inequality is really important because some people thrive like that. If you've got a lot of resources and you've got that kind of strong family unit, you can support each other really well. But if you don't have resources and you don't have that strong up and down family unit, you are stuffed because the state has retracted so much other support and extended family have drifted away and we don't have that Mm. same sort of connection so it's a golden age of the family in the sense of if you've got that but if you haven't then it's so much worse than the past because of that loss of extended network and the loss of state support there is no sign of really vigorous generational conflict of any sort and you could say if it was going to happen it would have happened by now given how screwed over millennials were in many ways and gen z are being in similar sorts of ways when they were starting out if there was going to be a time where you'd say there'd be a generational riot it would have been during that kind of period. It could still come, but it feels like there's huge things that attenuate that kind of intergenerational angst, which is love for the family. There's also a sense of we are going to get older ourselves. So taking things away from older people right now is not very smart when age is the only characteristic that we're going to pass through all of the different categories of if we're lucky enough to live that long.
0: Although I don't know many millennials that think they're going to get a state pension. By the
1: way, Yeah, no, exactly, exactly.
0: <laughs> or free transport or any of the other perks.
1: That's a really interesting question, because does that mean then millennials would say, okay, so there's no point in protecting that for current generations, because it's not going to exist by the time I get there? Or do you think that there's still a glimmer of hope, so they're not going to vote for anything that cuts back on older people's entitlements, because anything they're doing would self-fulfill the fact that they're not going to get it?
0: Politics can't work on that kind of future promise. For example, it would be ideal if boomers voted for their kids in the best interest of their kids. They don't. So trying to convince someone to vote in the best interests of their 80 year old self is, again, not likely to happen.
1: Because what you see in the data is that even now, young people prioritise state pension provision and things for older people generally, even though the kind of image of the poor pensioner has finally started to shift for people, there still is an element of people think pensioners are poorer than they actually are. But that's finally starting to shift a bit. But even in those circumstances, young people are pretty keen to protect the benefits of older people.
0: Being old used to be synonymous with being poor actually. And I think during the cost of living crisis, the idea of the older person living alone, not being able to put on the heating, choice between heating and eating, that's still quite a powerful image and actually is still quite a truthful image for pensioners in poverty. And that is a real issue. I do think you're right. The older demographic is you know, synonymous with rich and taking all the opportunities or not passing them down to their millennial kids now is the dominant narrative. But that's going to have to shift again because your generation aren't as rich and you don't have the same level of pension savings, let alone property wealth. This the Sabaymas.
1: Oh, no, no, it is a quite a step change. Although we are a kind of hinged generation between the two we got. There's a sort of split in Xs that have got. The one thing that I would say there's that one of the very first pieces on generational conflict that we did with Demos, uh, the think tank, years ago was about this idea of why aren't young people more resentful or voting against or arguing against in surveys saying they are against support for older people. And one of the key mechanisms was contribution, was that we put an awful lot of value on how much people have contributed in terms of how much support Mm. we want to give them. And older people, by dint of being around for longer and having been through hard times, seem to have contributed a lot. So, there is a kind of love for your family, maybe a selfish element to it, where if the state doesn't support my family, then I'll have to support them more. Then there's also the future me type thinking. And then there's also this underlying kind of general sense of older people deserve some support because they've given. Yeah, they've given, they've done these things, created these things. So, it's a hard thing to build intergenerational resentment in those circumstances. It's there, you know, it's resentment, but it's not going to be acted on very clearly.
0: Do you see an end to the culture war between the generations, however fabricated that may be? I mean, do you feel like there's a corner turning or do you think we're in a different phase than we were even three years ago?
1: I'm doing a book proposal now on culture wars. The point about culture wars is that they are more of a process than an event, if you see what I mean.
0: Completely agree.
1: It's kind of setting the tone about identity driven division rather than trying to win a single argument on a particular topic. So a couple of things, to say, especially from a generational point of view, this is quite unusual to put culture wars in the UK at so much at the heart of politics. So there is something different here. And I am worried about what that is doing about building in generational divides. And I hope that we rode back from putting that like right in front and centre in the next general election, because that would be bad. But then the other more hopeful point is outside of that kind of context, that need for cultural tension between generations to keep us from turning into a stagnant pond. So there's quite a big distinction between cultural tension and disagreement, which is mm-hmm. healthy. And if we didn't have it is actually an unhealthy sign versus culture wars, which are entirely different thing, which is about fundamentally different views of how the world should be, which are tied to my identity, which means I dislike you because you have a different vision, even though we may not disagree on individual issues. And it just becomes absolutely set with no compromise. That would be my hope as the tension continues.
0: Is there precedence in history there? Because if you look at the culture wars of the 80s, they did dissipate. When you think about the AIDS epidemic and how that was framed and you think about Section 28 and those moral wars of the 1980s, they did sort of crystallise into a new consensus in the 90s and the noughties. And there was legitimation and a acceptance, greater acceptance of homosexuality in particular. Can that offer us reassurance? I mean, as a historian, I'm quite sceptical to say that, but I think It's worth exploring whether we just kind of go, well, this is how it played out in the 80s. So let's just hold tight and hope that some kind of consensual point
1: is reached. That process is absolutely the description of generational culture change, where there's a new issue that say homosexuality that is changing its position in terms of how younger generations view it. They set a tone, but then what happens is there's a tipping point where it becomes more of a period effect of everyone changes and older generations move towards that kind of view. That is the classic of generationally driven culture change and that will continue to happen and where it goes on things like gender identity, really difficult to predict.
0: That's an argument often made on the trans debate is that they are going through the growing pains that say homosexuality did in the 80s and that we're moving towards greater social acceptance and awareness. The one problem I have with saying, oh, it will all be fine because look what happened in the 80s and 90s is technology. Social media actually is cementing our prejudices as we know and rather than breaking them down and one of the interesting things about social media and it was a point made on this podcast a couple of episodes ago by the journalist Marie Leconte which I thought was brilliant which is we tend to talk about these echo chambers created by social media that we're all sort of in our own little rooms actually the truth is is that we're all in the same room shouting. (laughs) shouting at each other and that conflict entrenches prejudice and that's not going away in fact it may be even reinforced by AI so that's the great unknown that wasn't there in the 80s and 90s
1: Yeah, no, look, information environment is absolutely vital to this. The first book was all about how does that change our view of perceptions and how difficult it is to get out of that. I would say that is a vitally important strand and difference. Whether that is determinant, though, that we have to go into this move from cultural tension and development of new cultural views on things versus a culture war, which becomes entirely about identity and which side are you on? You're on my tribal identity side or the other tribe density side, that is not set as entirely by the technology. That is pushed down as well as bottom up in terms of how do politicians, the media, social media platforms, how do they set these things up? Um, so there are choices to be made here about whether we turn this into cultural as opposed to difficult cultural tensions. I think the danger is saying the technology environment is different. It makes it feel like, oh God, there's nothing we can do now.
0: I have one final question, I suppose a practical one. For those listening, the They will fill the generational gap in their workplace, potentially their homes, potentially in society and politics at large. What advice would you give them to help them understand the generations better?
1: I start, particularly in the workplace, from the point of view that life cycle effects and period effects are just as important, if not more so than generational effects in a workplace. And it's partly because we play a role in the workplace and you've got kind of rules and different sort of boundaries. If I was giving advice, it would be really try to keep that three-way framework in mind when you're thinking about how do I engage or get the best out of teams or is what am I looking at here if I'm looking at change or a challenge is this driven by cohort effect where this generation has a particularly different need is it a life cycle effect because they're young and they've got different needs when you're earlier in your career or is it a period effect and where everyone has changed in their view and actually I'm ascribing it to young people but it's actually everyone and that happens a lot with things like brand purpose and so connection to brand purpose and or views of work-life balance are prescribed a lot to it's a generational effect but actually it's much more of a period effect of we're all a bit more interested in having in brand purpose in our organization and we're all changing over time in terms of our connection and views of work-life balance that would be the main thing is to try to think about it systematically in terms of those three different types of effect rather than jumping to which is quite increasingly easy because we've got these quite clear images of what a gen z is or a millennial is jumping to that because we just as you say at the beginning we just do love a story stereotype. Stereotype or a kind of cliche it's very easy.
0: Thank you Bobby and thank you for such a wide ranging I think analysis and unpicking of certainly something that I obviously struggle with day to day in my job trying to work out the point purpose and best practice really when it comes to understanding the different generations. So you can connect with Bobby on Twitter at Bobby Duffy Kings and I'll put a link to his excellent book in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to It's All Relative. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Eliza Philby. And why not subscribe to my weekly newsletter to hear more from me about how we are changing as consumers, workers
1: and as citizens.
0: Oh, and do rate us on Apple Reviews. It helps me keep this podcast going.